All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's Sunday Chops. A couple of weeks ago, I had the absolute delight of catching up with Sarah Perry, writer of tremendous novels such as After Me Comes the Flood, Malmouth and international bestseller The Essex Serpent, which has been adapted to a six-part Apple TV series starring Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston. It started on Friday, just gone, and having watched the first episode on the preview service, I can tell you it is really worth a watch. As a fellow Essex girl, we had a lot to chat about, including what it's like to have a Hollywood star playing your protagonist, something I admittedly have rather less experience of, the fetishisation of women's trauma, the pride of being an Essex girl, and the weirdness of Mersey Island. If you know, you know. I hope you enjoy listening to this even a fraction as much as I enjoyed chatting to Sarah. I am... Delighted to say that I am joined on the Zoom by the author, Sarah Perry. Hello, Sarah. Hello, hi. Thank you very much for joining me. Basically, you're here today to, well, I'm going to ask you about a variety of different things, but The Hook, which I didn't really need because, as I have already shamefully told you, I'm a big fan of your writing. Your book, The Essex Serpent, has been adapted for a new Apple TV series which starts on May the 13th. So I guess I wanted to ask you, first of all, obviously the 
the Essex Serpent wasn't your first novel, it was your second. And I don't know, like your, your difficult second album, as it were. You'd already <laughs> written and had published After Me Comes a Flood, which did very well, received good reviews. It's often sort of thought of like this, the second work by any kind of artist is is a bit, you know, the follow up is always a bit tricky, isn't it? So could you ever have anticipated how successful it would be? No, absolutely not. I didn't even daydream about it. I think I'm quite hard on myself and on my ambitions. And I very rarely entertain daydreams that seem to me to be unreasonable because that's the way you get disappointed. So I keep my ambitions really modest and focus much more on what I think of the art that I've made rather than how it's received. Mm. Um, And after me comes a flood, as I've, I've spoken about this before, and, and I worry that it sounds um, resentful in some way, and it doesn't at all. I'm, I feel all gratitude, but I had a very difficult entry into publishing with um, many, many rejections and very long delays before publication. And my expectations were low anyway, and then, and then crushed further. <laughs> um, and I had this very strong sense of myself as being a, a bit odd. Um, and my books as being a bit odd. I'm very preoccupied with ideas of goodness and sin and ethics and varieties of love and intimacy. And my prose style is a bit um, the product of my slightly 19th century upbringing. And and at no point did I think that I would sell hundreds of thousands of copies. Um, and then the reception to After Me Comes a Flood was amazing, especially after all the rejection. And I think that just put the wind in my sails slightly. And I thought, well... I'm a bit of an odd writer, but there's obviously people who enjoy my variety of oddness. So I wrote The Essex Serpent much more happily than I'd ever written my debut. But my expectations were a few more kind reviews and, you know, being able to keep on paying the council tax and the rent. And so 2016 was just staggering to me to find that it had the reception that it did. And all word of mouth, none of it sort of cultivated via massive marketing campaigns or anything. It was, um, in fact, I went to the premiere of the Essex Servant on TV and I was with my wonderful team. So I was with my agent, my publisher and my publicist. And we just sat there in a state of like shock saying, do you remember handing out proofs of the Essex Serpent in early 2016? And we had hot cross buns and little tiny fluffy Easter chicks. And all of us and lots of the staff at Serpent's Tale just went into all our local bookshops. We were saying, hello, my name's Sarah Perry, Sarah Perry, P-E-R-R-Y. And I've written a book called The Essex Serpent. <laughs> Essex, yeah, The Essex. Would you like a print? <laughs> like, if you have a beginning like that, which is all very sort of quite low key, but very a very dedicated team, you don't expect to wake up six months later and find it's on a billboard in Victoria Coach Station. So, yeah, I think I'm a good lesson in keeping your expectations low so that you spend your whole life being amazed. <laughs> but do you think that kind of freed you in a way to write the book that you wanted to write? Absolutely. And that's one of the benefits of having the agent and the publisher that I do, which Mm. is that I've never been cultivated to somebody who has to pursue a brand in order to retain a market share or anything like that, which is, I have to say, an extremely reasonable way of pursuing a living as a writer. And um, I'm not somebody who thinks that writing is some sort of divine art, you know, that should be divorced from commerce. That's that's kind of nonsense. But it just happens to be that I 
am interested in lots of different ways of writing and and different modes of writing different subjects and it suits me to be with a team who let me just rush off and do this and then do something completely different and it is incredibly freeing yeah Mm. low expectations is extremely freeing Um, (laughs) and the aftermath of the acceptance was probably more difficult than the lead up to it in that respect as I said at the top, it's been adapted for Apple TV for, for a six-part series, which I've watched the first part of on a preview service, and it's very good, and it's got a big big cast in it, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. How involved were you in the adaptation? Did you have any involvement in it? I saw on your Instagram that you that you had a, a role as an extra in, in one of the yeah, scenes, which is, yeah. which is brilliant, but did you have any other sort of input? There's so many different ways that a writer can be involved. I know Sarah Collins has adapted her novel and has been very involved and has worked very hard on it, and, and Naomi Oldman's been very involved in the adaptation of The Power, and I... I don't have the work ethic to become a screenwriter as well as everything else. I I felt really strongly that I that I wanted to just hand it over because I'm a novelist and I don't really care about anything else. I mean, I really don't like including my partner and family. I only really care about <laughs> writing novels. Um, and I knew that if I if I was involved in the adaptation then that would really hamper my ability to work to work on the thing that really matters and I wasn't sure really how much I could contribute because I'm not a screenwriter but I was really lucky because I had my first meeting with Seesaw which was the production company Mm. that optioned it I went in and and Jamie Lawrence and who's the the kind of head producer he said you know what's your main concern or main need for this and I said just please don't turn it into a cheap Victorian romance. This is a gothic novel about faith and superstition and fear and intimacy. And it has real women, women as they actually were in the 19th century, not as we like to think of them. As long as you do that, then take it, God bless, and I won't interfere. And he just he just nodded in this very sober way. And he said, that's what we want to do. And I just believed him. Absolutely. And left the office with this completely, um, this is probably bonkers, but this very assured sense, almost supernaturally assured sense that it was in the right hands. And actually what happened was I've just been staggered by how much they've involved me. So all along they would, you know, I'd have a meeting with amazing Clio Bernard and she'd produced a folder of images that she wanted to draw on. And they were all kind of Gothic Essex and Gothic kind of, fishermen and scenes of London that Victorian London that had grit and grain rather rather than kind of our perception of it as this kind of Dickensian theme park and then I was showing the scripts and I was really happy with those and all along I was involved much more than I expected to be and they would kind of check that things were all right and I I would sort of look over my shoulder thinking like is someone more important than me in the room I don't (laughs) don't get why you're all looking at me and then I'm like oh yeah I wrote the novel okay um and so I was intending to be completely hands-off and, and was very hands-off. And then every now and then they would show me where they were and I would just say, it's great, carry on, thank you. But my main way of dealing with it was to was to let them take the option and then just forget about it completely, just put it out of my mind. Because, of course, it's years, six years ago that they, they optioned it, so oh, it's wow. a very long... That is a long yeah, process really long then. Process. Yeah, and the pandemic didn't help, of course. No, I forget about that. I forget about the uh, the two the two years of 
of nothing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the cast. I wanted to ask you specifically about Claire Danes, who plays Cora in the TV adaptation. And of course, she's a huge star. Like many other people of my generation, I first met, in inverted commas, uh, Claire Danes in my so-called life, which was like quite a seminal programme of my youth. And I, I think you were about the same age as me. I know that you had quite a strict religious upbringing. So I wondered, did you ever watch that as a teenager? Have you no, ever seen never it? never saw it. We didn't have a TV and I've never seen it. But I have seen, obviously, because I'm not an animal, uh, Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> about three times, um, and most of Homeland. And so it's really interesting because a lot of people ask me if they look, if, if Claire looks like I imagined Cora to look. And in the book, I describe Cora as being sort of tall and broad-hipped and kind of slightly untidy and very compellingly attractive when she sort of chooses to be. And Claire is a fairy of a woman with extraordinary poise and, and luminosity. And, and she doesn't really look like Cora's described. But the thing is, when I write my characters, I, I'm inside them. So although I obviously describe them because the reader has to see them, it's always their feelings and their emotions and their interiority that I think about most of all. And when I travelled down to set and saw Claire play Cora for the first time, all I saw was a woman in her late 30s full of a joy for life that she can't really keep a lid on, clever and earnest and full of love that she doesn't really know what to do with and sort of a bit boyish, but also occasionally very grand and very beautiful. And and it was just Cora. And that's the miracle of having an actor like Claire, who is absolutely at the top of her game and, and I guess has been for years um, and she just inhabits this person and all the things like hair colour or height are absolutely peripheral to, to mannerism and spirit. And, you know, I've never I've never seen acting up close, never visited a set before. And to see someone, to, I mean, she might as well have just taken flight. You know, it was it was just extraordinary. So I'm completely delighted by that. Yeah. What is it like to have someone like Claire Danes bring this person that you've written who I presume you know if uh, she's she's a very rounded you know she's a very human character and and, and I will come on to her in in a minute but you know I presume you must in some ways love Cora like you must love all of your characters right? It's a really interesting question and and I worry that I'm you know some sort of psychopath lacking in empathy I I do think about them they are real to me but they're but I'm also very very clear that I made them up you know yeah and my characters exist as a means of conveying ideas first and foremost so I didn't conceive of the book initially because I thought of this wonderful woman and wondered what to do with her the book was supposed to be about the conflict between faith and superstition and an examination of varieties of love and then I constructed the characters as a way of examining those things. And so that sounds really hard-headed. And obviously it didn't stay that way because you live with them for a bit and then they do start to seem quite real. But I'm pretty ruthlessly unsentimental about the book and about the characters. I wrote it a long time ago and I'm always very wary of resting on laurels and sort of looking wistfully back to a moment of professional success and not kind of moving on from it. So I've kept a lid on my affection for them all <laughs> mm. as a means of making sure that I press ahead. 
That being said, how could I mean, I've, I saw I've seen the whole series, all six hours of it. I was shown it in a little cinema in London. <laughs> it got to the end. And I was so profoundly moved that I had to put my coat over my head so I could cry in peace because <laughs> the director and the producer and some of the crew were like around me. And I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. So I think Claire and Tom as well, Tom Middleston, they, they did something to the characters that in that they performed some form of witchcraft that chipped through this like block of ice in my heart that like <laughs> makes me want to be unsentimental, be intellectual about it, be hard, be ambitious. They chipped through all of that and they went straight through to the fact that I love these people and I just howled. So so I think to answer your question in a slightly less roundabout way, what it did was in, permit me access to a degree of sentimentality and feeling that I didn't know I had and that I'd prevented myself from having. Well, that's, that's a very good answer <laughs> and an unexpected one, to be honest. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Cora, the central character, because she's a very interesting character, and as you say, you've not you've not written these characters in a sentimental way. They're they're plot devices, basically. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about her, and I think is still quite rare to see, is that Cora is you know the the beginning of the book. Her husband has just died, and we sort of learn in a more subtle way, I guess. But it is very clear that she's been a victim of domestic abuse. Yeah. But she is also a very three-dimensional character, which I think is still quite rare in representations of abuse. She has been abused, but she's funny, she's interesting, she's clever, she's feisty. Was that a deliberate thing? It's a really interesting question. And actually, it's tied up a lot with my presentation of Victorian women. So I think that you're dead right, and that where presentations of women who have been abused or traumatised are concerned. They don't tend to be massively three-dimensional. And I think it's because people want to know about the trauma and they like to conceive of women as being victims. And this is a really sensitive, subtle subject. And I have to speak very carefully at risk of appearing to be quite brutal about these things in a way that I don't intend. But women are not the sum total of their oppression and their trauma Mm -hmm. and I also controversially don't think it helps the cause of feminism in any way to foreground female frailty female suffering female trauma in the way that we have tended to do I think that fiction is easy to read and pleasurable to read in a base way when it salivates over the suffering of women. And I don't like it. I think it's a spurious pleasure, a bit lowest common denominator. But how did she suffer? Did it hurt? Did he cut her? Did she weep? Is she really traumatised? And this is not something I recognise from the women I know, including the women who have endured trauma. I had a wonderful conversation with the novelist Sarah Hall, who's a good friend of mine, and we talked about female resilience and about how actually it should be possible to examine domestic abuse and the patriarchy and so on through the filter, not of female trauma, but of female resilience. So the trauma is implicit in the depiction, but it's about the resilience through various means. So it was really important to me that what she endured at the hands of her husband was a constituent part of her character and not the defining characteristic. 
And I think the reason this matters is that if we dwell so heavily on the suffering of women, we end up accepting less as our due, because as long as we're not being abused and then we're in a relatively stable relationship, in some way, you know, it suggests almost that we should be grateful for that. But actually, if we if we see it as being the absolute aberration that it is, and women as the resilient, not all women are resilient because they're human beings and there's no reason why they should be. But, you know, if we see women as having enormous capacities of self-help, helping others, resilience, fortitude, then actually what happens is oppression of various kinds seems worse, not better. Does that make any kind of like bizarre circular sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, the listener can't can't see me but I have been nodding (laughs) nodding throughout yeah no I totally agree with you and I I agree that it's kind of like this misery porn isn't it almost that that sort of permeates everything this like we must have the you know and, and and I know a lot of women who we've spoken to on the podcast about tv particularly and sort of like detective programs and things like that where you see these kind of like you know splayed naked dead women all the time and it's just that I'm just I'm just bored of it and and what is you know what what point are we trying to make because it starts to look a bit like titillation doesn't it absolutely yeah absolutely and I also think you know Cora is descri- you you didn't do it because you are an astute and intelligent woman but Cora <laughs> is repeatedly described as being a very modern heroine which just makes me want to like kick a hole in a Land Rover she's not modern she's Victorian and Victorian women were quite modern you know and and I was I was taken to task by some dreadful little man in a newspaper for for writing a version of the 19th century that he said struck him as being a fantasy world but you know, by the time the novel is set, women had been able to train in medical school for 20 years and they'd been able to go to Oxford and Cambridge for 20 years. By the time the novel was set, women were working in mathematics, engineering, nuclear science, you know, with Marie Curie. Um, they were working, uh, you know, in social justice. They were in politics. There's an idea that women haven't been able to vote in any form of political election until 1918. But there are poll books showing women, including poor women and beggar women, voting in local political elections in the 1850s. Wow. And the more we think of Victorian women as not allowed out without a chaperone and you know just sitting patiently at home hanging their handkerchiefs and waiting for their husband to come up and shout at them before they give birth to their ninth baby you know the more we think that that's that's what life was like until the modern woman hatched out of an egg in 1918 and became suffragettes firstly it's so ahistorical as to be visible and secondly it means that our hard-won rights are so recent that we just have to be grateful with what you know what we've got whereas if you realize that you know this amazing poll book I think from Leicestershire from the 1850s shows a woman who owned a grocery shop business owner ran a grocery shop voting in the local political elections the more you you realize how absurd it is that we haven't leapt forward in 170 years to quite the extent that that woman might have expected so you know there's a lot of work to be done about reconstituting the idea of the victorian women and there's people like hallie rubinold who wrote the the, the biography of jack the Ripley and, um, and fern fern Riddell. so it's all part of the same thing i'm just never gonna write a woman who is defined by suffering just not gonna do because i've never met one so 
You kind of led neatly onto my next question, which I'd heard an interview that you gave a few years ago about the Essex Serpent, and you talked about how people see the kind of a Victorian novel, but at the same time, as you've just said, it has very contemporary themes, etc., etc. And you'd said in the interview that you wanted to show how modern the 19th century actually was. Why was it so important for you to do that? Was it important from a feminist perspective for you to do that? Or was no, it... No, sheer mischief. I mean, I I should say I, I'm a I'm a passionate, as you can tell, feminist, but I also don't think about it that much because I don't think about my gender very much, and I certainly don't think of myself as a woman writer. So I don't I don't tend to lead with women. Sorry, <laughs> or like my own, I guess identity as a woman which is entirely peripheral to me you know it doesn't really mean very much to me it hasn't I feel through a series of strokes of luck and intersections of privilege and identity it hasn't really affected me very much um the the main thing actually is yeah sheer mischief I like play and I like surprise and I just thought it would be really good fun to write a 19th century novel that really wound people up with its presentation of the 19th century. And every now and then somebody comes to one of my events and they stand up and they say, I just was expecting a Victorian novel and, you know, 100 pages in, I thought to myself, this could have been set today and they're really angry. And I said, thank you so much. Thank you for understanding (laughs) my work. Because, you know, this is the 1890s. If you woke up and it was a cold day you could warm yourself by the radiator making toast in your toaster and put robinson's marmalade on it and then take the tube to work at the prudential insurance company and if you had toothache you could get it taken out with anesthetic and then you could come home and cheer yourself up with some bourneville hot chocolate you know of course there's an enormous number of things about the 19th century that are so remote to us as to be virtually alien, but that's been repeatedly done. And I just thought it would be a laugh to do something <laughs> different. And it, and then the more I looked into it, the more I, especially, and then, and then especially looking at women and the way women are presented and the way they were. If you just look at diaries, letters, correspondence, you realise that, you know, the vision of women in the Victorian age that we have is just, it's so off-being. It would be like a historian in a 100 years' time reading Julie Cooper novels to get a handle on the lives of ordinary women um, in the UK. Mm. It would be, I'm a huge fan of Julie Cooper, it would be massively good fun and it would be very educational about a certain type of woman, but it it wouldn't be rigorous as a sort of historical review. (laughs) Okay, so I want want to move on to a slightly different, well, this is still a historical context question, I guess. So I should probably disclose, I am, like yourself, an Essex girl. I am speaking to you live from Harwich, would you believe? I could hear your accent and I thought, she's from Essex, isn't she? (laughs) Really? Just, just. Yeah. Honestly, very proud of that. And I'm I'm going to come back to that in a minute. You've written about it in The Essex Serpent. Obviously, it is set in... Essex and the the bit before they go off to Old Winter is they're, they're in Colchester, a place that I know very well, obviously having grown up in Harwich. It made me laugh reading the book and it's like, oh, Colchester, what's she doing going to Colchester? You know, whatever. <laughs> Was that like a contemporary joke or is that how people felt about Essex back in the day? It's kind of 
both. Dickens hated Essex. He went to Chelmsford, which is where I'm from. Mm. And I wish I could remember his exact phrase, but he was terribly rude about Chelmsford. He really was. But mostly, my my book, I, I wrote a short book called Essex yes. Girls that talks about this a bit, but like mostly it's a really modern phenomenon. And it's kind of from the 70s, 80s and 90s. And it is tied up with the way women are presented. And it's tied up with this really interesting place that Essex has, which is that it, it's it, it's sort of everything and nothing. So it's become subsumed into London and where it's become subsumed into London, it's lost some of its extraordinary identity. And yet out on the fringes, on the margins of Essex, it's really weird, but people don't ever get to the weird bit. They just go out on the underground to like the furthest reaches of the underground line and they can't see that it's anything different. Um, and then there's a really interesting kind of political thing where Essex became a bit of a political football because it was largely working class, but they all voted Tory. Mm. So they were kind of class traitors because, you know, there were builders that were doing really well out of stature. There mm. were lots of people in the trades. There were women and boys going up to the city, you know, com- coming out of Fenchurch Street from Basildon and, and sort of entering what had mm. been the, a kind of quite posh preserve with their Essex accents. And so they became really despised. So... I know that Dickens wasn't a fan, but it was mostly a kind of contemporary joke, yeah, that, that everybody in, in the Essex Serpent is so contemptuous of Essex. I mean, I actually came to your writing through Essex Girls. The, the oh. I guess it's an essay, would you call it? A, a long essay. essay. A long yeah, essay. Yeah, yeah. So that's how yeah. I sort of came to know your writing. I saw something posted about it on the brilliant Sadie Hasler also also an Essex girl uh she uh, who yeah. we chat to on the podcast from time to time and um, something about it on her Instagram feed and I was like oh I need to read that and you know obviously I, I loved it um so it, this sort of part of the world it's not a very glamorous part of the world we've got witches we've got Boudicca she's technically from Norfolk but you know whatever uh, yeah, I appropriated her. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I definitely appropriated her. We got Feel from Harwich, which I am. We've got Heidi High, the Bagpuss as well. But uh, Essex Girls is hilarious and brilliant. And, you know, I think it's such a wanky thing to say, I'm sorry, but important. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm enormously proud to be an Essex girl. And I imagine you must be too, to have written about it in, in such a way. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I am now, but I wasn't. And and I've spoken to a lot of people, including girls that I went to school with in Chelmsford, and spoken to them about how they feel about it. And, and a lot of us lied. We would say things like, I'm from just outside London. Or, when mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us moved immediately to London and we would say, I'm from London, rather than saying, you know, I'm originally from Essex. Because everywhere you went, which in my case wasn't very far, because, <laughs> you know, we didn't travel or have foreign holidays or anything, but you know there'd be jokes about being an Essex girl yeah and it really rankled and that my task with writing Essex girls actually was to tutor myself out of snobbery and misogyny because I realized I was rejecting the idea of being an Essex girl because I didn't want to be thought to be loud and vulgar and sexually promiscuous and then I woke up one day in my 30s and thought hang on a second what's wrong with any of those things and realized that you know 
What does being loud mean? It means saying your piece, being heard in public, in the public sphere, a fantastic quality, essential for any woman that's going to change the world in any way at all. You know, what does vulgarity mean? It, you know, it means dressing and presenting yourself in a way that's unpalatable to the ruling classes. Well, good. <laughs> so, and, you know, it's, you know, nobody should hold a view on a woman for the number of sexual partners that she's had so that book was a way of me kind of apologizing for ever having tried to distance myself from the concept of the Essex girl and and instead kind of saying that those are all fantastic qualities and may we all inhabit them more well because this part of Essex is you know it is really rich in history as as I said Boudicca or I like to call her Boudicca actually but I know that's technically inaccurate witches you know Matthew Hopkins all of that sort of stuff the, the English Civil War Colchester yeah. played a very important role in in the English Civil War yeah. um there's, there's lots of nursery rhymes come from Colchester like oh I didn't know that yeah um what's the one Humpty Dumpty is actually about a cannon. Yeah, it's about a oh, royalist amazing. cannon that got shot down from St. Botoff's Church. Amazing. Yeah, I think Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is also from Colchester, but I don't know the story behind that. Someone told me <laughs> that on a, on a tour once for my A-level history class. So I guess for, you know, if you, you're writing pieces set in, in a historical context, that's like quite a nice, you know, wealth to, to draw on. I think I was talking to... Either an American reader or my American publisher. Definitely in the Oh my States god, the Mayflower, the Pilgrim Fathers, sorry, like all of that yeah, yeah, stuff absolutely. as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to explain how like if you've got a back garden in Essex and you dig, mm. then you're digging down through scenes of history because you've got like if it's in the right place of Essex, then the top part could well have like remnants of blitz damage. And you go down a bit further and you've got you're turning up Victorian stuff. And then you might start turning up Anglo-Saxon things. You know, there's a reason why the detectorist is set in Essex because the soil is full of, you know, Saxon gold. And then you keep going down further and you find bits of Roman pottery. And that's, you know, just pick a field in Essex. It's the, the history of the nation is encased in the soil. And I find that so exciting um, as a kind of microcosm of what our nation is, which is that there's no such thing as like the indigenous people of the UK or people who have a right to live here. It's, you know, mm. what Jeremy Paxman called a mongrel race, um, you know, Vikings, Normans, Romans, Saxons, mm. the whole lot. Or, and, and Essex, because of where it's located, had so much of that going on and a constant kind of turnover of cultures. And I find that really exciting. And that's something that it, that I think is something to be proud of, rather than like a slightly horrifying kind of blood and soil notion of Englishness, where you sort of think that everyone, everything's been the same for mm. hundreds of years. We're from somewhere that shows how everything kept changing and it will keep changing. And that's exciting. And that's like a, as a culture should be. So in The Essex Serpent, Cora heads off to Colchester and then she hears about the serpent and she goes out to the fictional town of Old Winter, which is we know is near Colchester, to yeah. go and find this this serpent, in inverted commas. And I wondered if you could tell me, where is Old Winter? Is it based <laughs> on a specific place or is that like secret you know, information? <laughs> Having... 
claimed to have a block of ice in my heart where my book's concerned. Do you know, I was writing something about three years ago. I was writing something about the Essex Serpent and I Googled Aldwin to check where it was. And then I got halfway through and you made it up. Right. So the Essex coast used to extend kind of further and it's had a lot of coastal erosion and yeah. loads of sea defences. Mm. And I'm not 100%. And also the North Sea flood in 1952 kind of changed the coastline. I've taken liberties with whether or not there's like an extant village that is now gone. But I have in mind outright by Mersey Island, but not actually over the causeway, the Morden area, St. Osis, all of that around the Blackwater estuary. There are all of these places that are so familiar to me from my childhood because I'm an Essex girl, so I'll be visiting them all the time. Um, and I chose to invent a village because then I could just be free. And I actually wrote the book in real time. So I began writing, it starts in January, I think, and I began writing it in January. And my I don't drive. So my parents and my husband would be dragooned into constantly driving me down to the Essex coast in each of the months of the year so that I could look at the wildlife and I could look at what the weather was doing and I could look at what the hedgerows were doing and we yeah we went to Mersey Island a lot we went to a couple of nature reserves the names of which I can't remember Rain and Marshes I think we went to Malden, St Osith, all of those places and then I smooshed them together to make Alden turn. Because I guess if it's old winter, then you don't have to actually say Mersey Island is a bit weird. <laughs> yes, really odd. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you about something else, which is a, on a completely different subject. But the other thing that we have in common, Sarah, is that I also have the terrifyingly named, but not actually that terrifying autoimmune condition, Graves' disease. Which? Do you really? Yeah, I do. Oh, wow. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. I very rarely meet anyone with it, which is odd because it's not that rare. You're the only, only the second person I've spoken to who has it. I saw something on your Instagram feed where you described something and I was like, oh, that sounds like that sounds like Graves. So I, I Googled Sarah Perry Graves yeah, and it transpired yeah, you'd yeah. written this article about it. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about that because I saw, you know, from some of the articles you've read, it sounded like it had quite a profound effect on you i'd saw an interview where you said that you wouldn't have been able to write the essex serpent if you'd had the experience before you'd written it one of the reasons i found the adaptation of the essex serpent really difficult was because it's it's it represents time before i really suffered so it represents kind of my youth in a way that is amazing but also quite melancholy so I was already ill when it was published but we didn't know what was wrong and for a long time the symptoms looked like anxiety because they they do like um, if you have Graves disease your your thyroid dumps loads of you know you end up with loads of stuff dumped in your bloodstream like cortisol and all sorts so you know you have a racing heart and you're sweating and you feel sick and you keep going to the toilet and you can't sleep and you've got a headache you know all all of this kind of stuff it looks like anxiety so if you have a book that's suddenly gone insane and you you're used to your quiet little life in Norwich and suddenly you're being you know all over the place um that's kind of a thing (laughs) and so people felt it might be anxiety and then I was diagnosed with it and then it was like 
it was like having a chip on the windscreen of a car and then the car hitting a speed bump and everything shattering. So one of the massive things that happens with Graves' disease is you, you lose an enormous amount of weight well, if it's untreated for a while. Mm. And then, and then you're medicated, and then you gain it. Mm. Um, and I gained, so I lost some weight, and then gained a large amount of weight. And also, Graves' disease um, wastes your bones and, and muscles, so you become very, very weak oh, if you have it mm. to the extent that I did. Mm. So I was somebody who had a lot of bone loss, muscle wastage, ch- weight changes, weakness, and it ended up with me rupturing a disc in my spine so severely. I had partial paralysis of the leg and had to have emergency spinal surgery and endured literally suicidal pain. I would have killed myself if I could have done and and um, it's not uncommon for people to attempt suicide when they've had the kind of pain that I have and then I had a very long road of recovery back from all of that and it took my joy <laughs> I can't there's no there's no sense kind of putting it another way you know my youth ended and my optimism ended because once you've endured that degree of pain then you can't ever go back to knowing not knowing that and I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD of the same kind that torture victims are are diagnosed with and had a lot of therapy and a lot of treatment for that and I'm changed forever and I'll never be the same and so the best way of describing it is, you know, the woman that wrote The Essex Serpent is dead. And so I saw, I watch it on TV and talk about it. And it's wonderful because it represents this time of kind of optimism and youth and innocence, this kind of prelapsarian version of myself. And I'm glad she existed, but she doesn't exist now, which is why my next book was really dark. (laughs) And I do, I feel, you know, I've been very lucky. I've recovered brilliantly. I'm, a picture of health and strength I'm so strong I can pick up grown men and throw them across the room should I need to um <laughs> but mentally you know there's a there's something happened that I'm past but that I always kind of carry with me so um yeah that's kind of what I meant I could I couldn't have written it I couldn't write it now because I'm I'm not as bonny as I was sounds really sad sorry really depressing well I don't think we need to feel too sad you've just had your your very 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 successful book made into a, a tv yes, program exactly. starring claire yeah. danes so i think i think you're doing all right right I'm doing, doing all, right. all right and it was really nice actually claire bernard the director is this extraordinary woman and and i went down on set during the pandemic you know when we really weren't supposed to be doing anything and everyone was masked up and it was like covid tests it's incredibly secure and uh, we weren't allowed to touch each other. So we were standing two metres apart. And I looked at it all and I was really emotional. And I said, you know, this is really important. This is incredibly healing because I've been through some stuff. And what you're doing is reminding me of this joy. And I started crying. And then Clio started to get really tearful. And we couldn't, like, embrace. And I'm a really big hugger. And I was like, oh, God. And we were just all, like, touching elbows on a field in Mersey Island, you know, in March 2031. <laughs> and, and, and that's one of the reasons I feel really emotional about it is that it, it did, you know, it brought it all back. And it was this kind of, like, healing circuit that, you, that things orbit. You know, I'd been in a bit of a dark place. And then I'd come orbiting back towards the light. And it was really, it's really amazing. Yeah, I'm really grateful from that point of view i believe you are working on something at the moment what what's next for you what can you tell us about what you're up to i have just finished a draft of the book that took me five years to write 
which is partly the pandemic, but partly, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it. I'll say it's set in Essex. There you go. I've written another book set in Essex. And I've just, because I, I like to work, I've just started researching the next one, which might have a medieval element. Mm. I think I'm going to return to historical fiction and have a look at another period of history. So I feel really lucky. I just sit in my study making up stuff. What a life, you know? <laughs> Sarah, where can we follow you? I mean, I know where I do follow you, but where can we follow you on any kind of social media to to keep up to date with what you're doing? And I do follow you on Instagram and you are very entertaining and I enjoy your posts very much. Just fangirl <laughs> you. you again. Oh, that's nice to hear. Um, I'm only on Instagram and I think it's Sarah Grace Perry or one word? Or is it Sarah underscore Grace underscore Perry? I think it's Sarah Grace Perry, but I, I, you know, I'm not that creepy I'm that there. I could actually tell. You'll find me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only Sarah Grace Perry there. So, yeah, you'll find me. Um, and it's mostly whippets and books and clothes and the moon. Is that interesting? Is there Sorry. anything else in life? <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for chatting to me. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you. I enjoyed it enormously. It was really great. Cheers. Standard issue for all women.